Hello everyone, it's Monday, blurred. I'm wildly overcaffeinated and I have a ton of work to do. I'm driving to Maine this week for a little vacay near the beach with my family, so you know how that is. Must complete tasks. Pack suitcase. It's the end of the third quarter and that is intense times, you know? Today we're going to dive into the recent challenge of the data privacy framework and what that means for organizations like yours, but before that, let's get into the news. First up, California passed the Delete Act. Last week on September 14th, California lawmakers passed the Delete Act, or SB 362. I got you, lawyers. I know you get mad when we don't include bill numbers. Uh, the Delete Act extends the CCPA's reach on opt-out requests, as the LA Times reports. The act allows Californians to opt into a de facto do-not-sell list for data brokers collecting and selling their information. Not only would data brokers have to comply, but also their associated service providers and contractors. As J.D. Super reports, the law creates a do-not-sell list for data brokers targeting the state's residents. Assuming California Governor Gavin Newsom signs the bill, data brokers would have to comply with deletion requests as of August 1st, 2026, and they would be required to continuously delete the consumer's personal data, making the request, at least once every 31 days. Really clean things out, you know? Under the law, fines for failure to register as a data broker stand at $200 per day, with an additional $200 tacked on per day for each and any deletion request failure. Next up, TikTok got fined. In Europe, Ireland's Data Protection Commission has fined TikTok $368 million for failing to protect children's privacy. This is TikTok's first fine under the GDPR, though it was a long time coming. As the AP reports, the fine follows an investigation which found that the sign-up process for teen users made their accounts public by default, allowing anyone to view and comment on their videos. The default setting also posed risks to children under 13 who gained access to the platform, though they're technically not allowed to join. And, said the regulator, TikTok's practices nudged teen users to more privacy-intrusive options when signing up and posting videos. Next, Google got fined. Hacker News, among others, reported last week that Google has agreed to settle a $93 million lawsuit with the state of California over allegations the company's location privacy practices misled consumers and violated consumer protection laws. California AG Rob Bonta said, quote, our investigation revealed that Google was telling its users one thing, that it would no longer track their location once they opted out, but doing the opposite and continuing to track its users' movements for its own commercial gain. And the focus of today's podcast. As Politico reported this week, French lawmaker Philippe Letom has filed a challenge over the EU-US data privacy framework. The challenge is a two-parter. One, it calls for the immediate suspension of the agreement, and the other is based on the text content itself. Latom said the DPF, which the EU and U.S. signed as official in July, as you recall, violates the GDPR and the European Union's Charter of Fundamental Rights because it insufficiently guarantees respect for private and family life due to its permissions on bulk collection of personal data. And that's what we're going to talk about today. My guest is a good friend of mine, Julian Flamont, who's an attorney at Hogan Levels. I've known Julian for a long time. He lives here in D.C., and one thing I treasure about Julian is he's very supportive of his peers and very positive. He works insanely hard at his job, but he doesn't take that into relationships like some of us do. And by some of us, I mean me. 
I remember this one time I was talking to him after the CDT's tech prom one night. This was years ago. And if you know me, you know that I sometimes struggle to recognize my own value. It's not a great quality and I've been working on it for a while, actively. Uh, but anyway, at this time I was feeling particularly down and I remember him telling me that I was doing like an amazing job with the podcast. This is back when I hosted the IPP's uh, privacy advisor podcast. And when I expressed my own self doubts, he really leaned into why I was so great, you know, at it. Um, I walked away that night holding my head a little higher and feeling a little bit more confident, uh, about the podcast itself. And I've never forgotten that. I consider Julian, uh, super intellectual. He's very smart. So for him to tell me that I was doing a great job on the subject matter that he's an expert on, that felt really good. Anyway, that's just a nice thing about Julian, I wanted to say, or Juju, as I like to call him. So today he's going to talk us through the data privacy framework's latest developments and what that means for you. Specifically, whether you should lean into the framework despite its latest challenge or keep relying on those SCCs. Before I leave you, a note that TerraTrue, my company, my lovely company, um, and the company that funds this podcast, thank you, TerraTrue, is going to be at PSR uh, in San Diego next month. We'll be exhibiting, and my boss, Chris Hanman, is speaking about how to work with security to future-proof your privacy program. He's chatting with Kristen Morneau at Greenlight and Shannon Donier at OfferUp. Um, it's going to be October 5th at 3.45 to 4.45. And it's going to be the kind of session where you stop having to stare at technical slides and just get some practical, actionable advice to scribble down in your iPhone notes or uh, in your little notebook. So go check it out. As always, if you like this episode, please show me, please, by sharing with your peers on social or otherwise. And hey, subscribe to the show to never miss an episode. And remember, on this Monday... You're doing an amazing job, the best you can, and just keep going. Love you. Talk soon. So excited that you're here. I always love when you are on the show because you're so good. As I said, I think in my intro last time you were on the show, uh, you're just one of those people that like, you don't even need the questions in advance. You're just like, yeah, sure. Let's record a podcast. And then that's it. And we jump on and then you're a star, um, which makes my job easier and makes listening fun for listeners. So, uh, how are you? I'm doing well. And thanks for having me on the podcast. It's always great to come on here and, and have an informal chat with an, with an old friend in the privacy or in privacy land as, as another one of our friends often says. Uh, so, so thanks very much. Yeah, the last time I actually got to see you recently, we had uh, JoJo, Joe Jerome's goodbye party, which uh, you were multitasking, you were like working through the night, but you managed to stop by for a quick uh, goodbye to Joe and then went right back to it, as is the Juju way. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it's, I don't know if it's my way or the, the way of, of my industry, but yes. Yeah, happen. fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Um, all right. So I think what we're going to talk about today, because I was asking you, you know, what's, what's kind of interesting right now that you're working on. And, um, you had mentioned that this whole data privacy framework thing is kind of a good place to talk, good thing to talk about right now, because we've got some news surrounding it. Folks are still adjusting to, um, to the new agreement and trying to put plans in place. So can I ask you first, just, um, you know, Broadly speaking, without mentioning names, of course, like what kind of questions are you getting from clients these days on data privacy framework? Well, so that's that's a great that's a very broad question um, to start with, and I think it's a good one 
uh, in recognition of kind of the impact that the framework or the DPF, the data privacy framework has on the marketplace. Um, I think companies are excited that finally there's been an agreement and there's kind of a way forward uh, for data, for transatlantic data transfers beyond the standard contractual clauses uh, or for some companies who pursue binding corporate rules. Uh, the DPF really represents uh, a, a great opportunity to, to help support data flows across the Atlantic. And so the big questions we're getting is, should we certify? Um, we had a certification under Privacy Shield that we've maintained. What the heck do we need to do now uh, to make sure that we remain certified under the DPF? And then there's kind of a broader question for companies that are being very strategic and thinking about their data transfers kind of on a longer time frame, which is that they're saying, well, listen, we use Privacy Shield. Uh, but when that, you know, when that was set aside or when that was invalidated by the European Court of Justice, we had to kind of reframe a lot of our data transfers programs. And we now have these SECs in place. Does it make sense for us to move away from those and onto the DPF, which, you know, I think as we're going to talk about a bit, there's, there's a fair amount of chatter about whether it could actually endure or whether it could survive uh, judicial scrutiny in the EU. So re really the questions are, should we get certified? Uh, how do we get certified depending on the specific circumstances of the company? Uh, and also, if we are doing certification, how do we deal with our existing data flows and the existing mechanisms that we have? Okay, cool. Um Can you take us through just the kind of level set for folks where we're at now? So we know that Privacy Shield got struck down. Before that, it was Safe Harbor. Um, the EU and the U.S. worked for some time to come to a new agreement based on some concerns from the EU on, uh, you know, how many rights Europeans actually have to redress, how effective that redress might be based on the court that would adjudicate over that. And, um, you know, basically these concerns that we've had for years and years over national security, U.S. national security authorities' access to European data. Um, where are we now with this new agreement? Was it a sigh of relief and seemed like, ah, uh, yes, this is the answer, or uh, are there still concerns? Well, from from my perspective, we're in a in a pretty good spot. I mean, I think the DPF and particularly the corresponding underlying changes that have made to the U.S. signals intelligence apparatus are pretty significant. Um, and so, you know, it, it's always hard to tell when you're in the moment, whether you're at the end of a saga or right in the middle of it or just beginning. I don't, you know, we can talk about it in 30 years. Um, but as you said, just to level set, the you know, where we are now is that uh, over the past decade, there have been a series of agreements between the governments in the U.S. and the European Union that allow companies to transfer data originating in the EU or in the European Economic Area, which is a, which includes a couple more countries or a few more countries, uh, to transfer data, uh, you know, into the U.S. So this is a, a U.S.-EU agreement. Um, and so first we had the safe harbor that was invalidated in 2015. 
um, by the European Court of Justice, uh, who reasoned that the European Commission in issuing the adequacy decision that kind of, you know, gave the safe harbor legitimacy did not take into account uh, the scope of surveillance occurring in the U.S. So the U.S. signals intelligence agency's ability to obtain to obtain data from uh, from companies who had you know who were in the U.S. and had received data from the EU. So then, safe harbor uh, is invalidated. Then it was replaced with the privacy shield, which was kind of the follow up agreement or the the, the successor to safe harbor. Um, and, and that also was invalidated in 2020, uh, on, on similar grounds, basically that, well, while the commission had considered the scope of U.S. surveillance, um, in issuing its adequacy decision related to the privacy shield, it failed to consider, uh, the, the bulk, what, what the European court referred to as bulk and indiscriminate surveillance, which it determined was contrary to European fundamental rights. Um, and so that kind of brings us to modern day, which is that following invalidation of the privacy shield, the European Commission and the U.S. government um, really did a lot of work to find, uh, to find an agreement, to negotiate an agreement that would allow for transfers of data across the Atlantic, but also that could withstand judicial scrutiny. And the reason I framed it like that is because I think the most important thing to highlight here is that there's been really a changed approach. There's been um, a deep commitment from the U.S. government to really reform its surveillance practices, uh, you know, to, to kind of build in or incorporate those European fundamental rights or European ideals for how data should be handled. Um, and so there are a couple of pieces to this. We have an agreement again. It's called, as, as we've been discussing, the data privacy framework. Uh, but in addition to that, we have the executive order 14086, which for the purposes of the DPF, but also outside of the DPF, kind of represents a sea change in the authorities that U.S. intelligence agencies have to go and get data. Um, it implements necessity requirements. It implements proportionality requirements. It also establishes a pretty significant redress mechanism that individuals can actually go to the government and say, I'm concerned about the, the collection of my data by intelligence agencies, um, you know, and I want that to be reviewed. And so, and so there's been a pretty substantial change. And I think we're going to talk about some of the challenges that we expect for the DPF. Uh, but it is important to recognize, you know, just how much ground we've covered in finding an agreement that seemingly could withstand scrutiny in the EU. Um, what about this point that the EU has brought up about this redress mechanism that, you know, the so-called court, uh, which I think is a term that has also been criticized, um, that would oversee disputes over this is you citizens say, hey, uh, I think, you know, my data is being swept up in this and uh, laws are being broken here, frameworks are being broken. Um, what 
what what say you to the argument that this court isn't really independent because it actually falls under the executive branch? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a concern. And it's certainly a lot of the noise that that we've been hearing about criticism of of the, the updated approach um, is that the, you know, European fundamental rights require that individuals are able to obtain um judicial process. So a review by an independent body of, in this case, surveillance practices. Um, I don't agree that the new framework that was established under EO 14086 uh, isn't sufficient. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a two-layer redress mechanism. So if a European individual now, or or an individual residing in the European economic area, now that the European economic area is designated as a qualifying state uh, by the U.S. Attorney General. If that, if one of those individuals wants to submit a complaint about U.S. signals intelligence practices, there is an initial review that occurs um, by the Director of National Intelligence of those uh, um, of, of the surveillance practices. And basically what they would do is, is review those to make sure that they correspond to really what are limitations that were implemented, uh, by the executive order. And the director of national intelligence has the ability to, so would make a finding and has the ability to, to bind the intelligence agencies, um, to some kind of remediation process, right? That might be purging data, uh, or, you know, reframing the way that that surveillance is done going forward. So that's just one layer of the review process. If needed, the complaining individual can appeal that. And then that appeal, the decision by the Director of National Intelligence, would be appealed to a new court that has been established, which is the Data Protection Review Court. It's administered by the Department of Justice. Um, and there again, you know, you have you have real process occurring where uh, where the surveillance practices would be reviewed, and then the finding of that court would be final and would potentially require change. I think that's a key piece here. They have the ability to bind um, intelligence agencies, you know, to a particular remedial outcome. Regarding independence, it's true that the court um, is based in um, the executive branch. So, you know, I think everybody knows in the U.S. we have three branches of government. There's legislative, judicial, and executive. And the challenge is that surveillance practices are administered by the executive branch, right? All of the U.S. intelligence agencies fall under the authority um, of, of really the president or the executive the I, the issue I think from critics is that this data protection review court also falls under the remit of the executive, and so they see kind of a discrepancy there where there's a lack of independence because the branch of government actually doing the the surveilling is also the one that would be reviewing the the surveillance apparatus. Now the challenge with that criticism is that it doesn't take into account the safeguards that have been put in place to ensure that this data protection review court remains independent. Um, it's a, it's a separate body. Yes, it's administered by the Department of Justice, but, uh, the, 
the judges that are appointed to that have protections, uh, for example, from being removed uh, from from their posts, uh, right, from getting some kind of influence from other executive branch actors. Um, and also notably, as I mentioned before, they have the ability to really bind the intelligence agencies to a particular outcome. And so, yes, on paper, it's not the judicial branch entity. It's not established in, within a separate branch. But I think there are, there are all these safeguards for independence that I think ultimately, you know, would 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 be meaningful in any review. What about one more thing before we move on to kind of the practicalities of this and moving forward, what to do? I know, um, and I actually, I, my favorite types of conversations are when I don't have a script uh, to go off of and I just kind of like bounce it back and forth like a tennis match with, uh, (laughs) so I didn't actually write down notes here, so I might mess up the terms, which are incredibly important in this case, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Sure. The other criticism that I recall from Shrems, at least, who we know, you know, we should pay attention to his criticisms because his track record is pretty good in terms of bringing his cases. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good way to look at it. Striking different mechanisms, like the guy wins, like him or hate him. Um, but his other protest, I think, was based on the terms, and I remember them as being proportionate, I think was the term, or or reasonable. You'll correct me. But... Um, he was saying that the terms in the contract, um, the way that the U.S. defines them is different from the way the EU would define them, and that those very terms are quite important in terms of what you're actually doing there. Can, am I wrong on that? Yeah, I mean, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And this is kind of, so, I, so we discussed, you know, the, the potential criticism regarding how the court operates and its independence. And I think the other big criticism that you know, that it, that potentially would lead to arguments is regarding this concept of necessity or these concepts of necessity and proportionality. Um, so, uh, you know, as we know from the Schrems II ruling, uh, European fundamental rights, uh, as well as just data protection law, require that the surveillance would be necessary and proportionate to the goals being achieved and at least in the European Court of Justice's view, uh, you know, bulk and indiscriminate, as it calls it, collection of data. So where there isn't a particular targeted, um, you know, targeted collection of data, those would violate those principles of necessity and proportionality. So the, the way that the U.S. government has addressed this is they created this executive order that has all of these restrictions on the activities that intelligence agencies can do. And notably that um, any surveillance operation or signals intelligence surveillance operation must be necessary and proportionate um, to the goals. They, to, you know, to the goals being pursued by that surveillance. They've gone a step further and outlined what would be you know, legitimate objectives of a, of a surveillance operation. And so what that means is that anytime an intelligence agency goes out to do surveillance, they would need to confirm that their operation is necessi- necessary and proportionate to the, you know, what are called legitimate security objectives or, or legitimate surveillance objectives. Um, so, 
you know, I, to me, it seems like a robust implementation of this concept. Uh, yes, it does state in the executive order that this doesn't necessarily preclude uh, bulk collection, which which is interesting that they included that because it's kind of at the crux of of, of the EU complaint here. Um, but I guess what the U.S. government would say is that bulk collection of information is not necessarily um, disproportionate, you know, to to a legitimate surveillance goal. Um, and so really that's, that is, I acknowledge that that's kind of a, a weakness or a potential area for criticism. And it does seem like that would be um, one that would be taken up by critics. You know, and I think we should also mention, so we're talking about Schrems right now. Um, Schrems has criticized the DPF on the two points we've mentioned, but has not actually formally launched the complaint. But we do have a formal complaint um, that's been launched. And it's and it's an interesting case because it was um, the complaint was made directly to the Court of Justice of the European Union. And it takes a different approach than Schrems has traditionally taken. Uh, which, you know, Schrems would complain about a specific company's transfers of data and use that as a vector um, to, to kind of throw the whole transfer system in question. Well, the complaint that we have, which which was launched by um, a French member of parliament who also serves on the French um, Data Protection Regulator Council, which is the CNIL. Philip, uh, uh, just in case people want to read more about it, oh, yeah. um, Philippe, Latum is his name, so you can Google that uh, case. It just came out this week if you want to read the news media coverage. Sorry to interrupt you, Keep going. Oh, that's fine. Well, and if you want to read about it, you should visit um, the Hogan Levels privacy blog on Engage, uh, where we have an article about it. Um, but basically, it's it's an interesting complaint because it addresses, it's, it's, it's an effort to set aside directly the adequacy decision. Uh, and so potentially that would lead to um, a decision much more quickly than the Schrems cases, which, you know, tend to take a few years to mature. They have to go through uh, national process in the Schrems cases they were in Ireland before then having specific questions referred to the Court of Justice. This Philip Latom complaint is going directly to the Court of Justice of the European Union, and it's not complaining about... Um, you know, individual company practices related to transfers, but instead actually complaining about the European Commission's adequacy decision. Uh-huh. Uh, I read the complaint. It's I don't think it's available, uh, but it, it certainly will be one to watch. And and for the companies that are kind of worried about, the, you know, whether the DPF can be sustained over a long period of time, it's, you know, it's definitely something that people are monitoring and wondering uh, how, you know, whether whether they should put in the resources and efforts to become DPF certified and update their internal practices when there's already challenges. Um, uh, I have a comment on that. I'm just realizing in real time and sort of mortified hearing you uh, as a French speaking uh, French Canadian um say his name i thought i was being very clever when i wrote about this in my newsletter and i titled the headline of the newsletter something like latum wants to put dpf in its tomb and now i hear you say it and it is not philippe latum it's philip latum 
is how you'd say You it. know what? That's how I would say it. Philippe Latour. Well, I'm going to trust you because you but, are French. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I'm a good person to trust on this one. Although, as we're saying that, you know, I feel like some French person, I can imagine the comments on your podcast that would be like, this guy, you know, Flamont doesn't know what he's talking about. So <laughs> I'll say how I would say it. Um, but I also think, you know, particularly when we're talking about a transatlantic matter, I think you totally have artistic license to, uh, you know, to to make puns across languages. So I, to, I butcher, to butcher his name for the sake of my pun, fair. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> I just have one question on that. I, um, this is probably my naivete on EU uh, procedural law, but like, Shrem, I can see why Shrems would take a case where he could look at. Uh, a specific company and kind of use that as a use case and say like, here, this is what's happening and here's why it's illegal versus uh, Latam taking it to the CG, uh, CJEU directly. Is there a reason why Schrems wouldn't just go to the court? Like does, as a parliamentarian, does he just like have that access to be able to take it up with the court instantly? Or is it just a difference in strategy in terms of how Schrems thought, even if it's a long-term solution, he could get to the heart of the issue. You know, I'll, I'll need to bring in my colleague on this one. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah. we have a big team of, of European lawyers and, you know, this is really a constitutional law question. But what I'll say is my understanding is that this procedure um, is available to individuals. And in fact, I think one of the big aspects of this is that while Mr. Latom is a is a minister and he serves on the Camille, he's pursuing this in his individual capacity. Okay. Um, okay. So, so I don't see why, I mean, maybe, maybe I should leave it at that. Um, except to say that my understanding is that there's going to be, there are some standing issues to consider, uh, which, which is interesting because here in the U S you know, standing to bring claims is something that we deal with a lot of. And I was less familiar with it in the European context. Um, but it seems like, you know, I mean, I, you know, I've been reading the same stuff that everybody else is reading and it, and it seems like there is kind of an expectation that this could get dismissed early on, on standing issues. Uh, but I'm, I'm not really in a position to, to discuss those in more depth. Okay. Fair enough. Um, okay. So let's talk, let's move the ball forward a little bit in terms of, you mentioned that the questions, that you're getting from your clients um, involve, you know, and we're not being completely comprehensive here, but, you know, does it make sense to move from SECs to the data privacy framework and sort of how do we deal with that? What kind of um, advice would you give to folks who are listening to this and wondering the same thing? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question. And it's probably what I'm dealing with the most um, just on a kind of a day-to-day practice level. Um, because, you know, you can imagine that our clients are, are really big multinationals. And so they spend a lot of time thinking about how to, to lawfully transfer data from, from the EU to other jurisdictions, particularly because, um, or, or maybe just because, you know, the GDPR has this restriction on X EU transfers uh, unless there's some kind of transfer mechanism in place. And one of those are the standard contractual clauses. And so there, there are a couple of other mechanisms, but, but let's focus on the SECs because they're the most common or the commonly used mechanism 
and basically they're a set of standard contracting clauses that companies would append to their data processing agreements or to their services agreements with both customers and with vendors um, that implement additional protections uh, that the European Commission has found create, you know, essentially equivalent protections to what is offered in the EU. And so an example of that is that you would transfer data from, let's say, from France um, to California. Uh, maybe California is not a great example because of the CCPA, but let's say you you transfer personal data from France to Nevada. And in, in Nevada, there's no right to, for an individual, so in this case, a European individual, to access um, information about the company's processing, to even access specific pieces of information that the company is, is retaining about them. The SECs, and, and right, and, that, and so that's a right that exists under the GDPR in Europe, but not in Nevada. And what the SECs would do is contractually require the, the, the entity that is importing the data into the U.S., so in Nevada, um, to provide that access right. That, that's just a simple example, but the SECs really bridge, act as a bridge to, to, for those protections you know, to apply to the data wherever it's sent abroad. Um, and so, you know, which essentially is what the DPF does. But the SECs, you know, are, are something that companies need to append to contracts. They also need to implement them and here's the point that I'm getting to is that they actually tend to require more protections than what's required under the DPF, you know, and in my opinion, that's just a factor of how the most recent version of the SECs came about. Um, they followed the last Schrems case, Schrems 2, uh, when, you know, it seemed like for a while there was not going to be a solution to transfer data to the U.S., because the, SC, the, the SECs in place at the time were upheld uh, in theory, right? But there were all these additional risk assessment obligations that the European Court of Justice applied. And so European regulators came out and said, well, you can still use your SECs, but we want to make sure that you're implementing additional protections, even above what the SECs require, uh, to make sure that that EU personal data is protected when it's transferred to jurisdictions that have, in their opinion, you know, less um, less prescriptive privacy rules. Um, and so the European Commission got to work on updating the SECs and really creating a set of, of, of strong and uh, enduring protections. And, and, and so what that means is what we've ended up with is that the SECs are actually more restrictive um, than transfers under the DPF. Examples of that is that the SECs grant third-party beneficiary rights. Um, they require the importer to report uh, back to the exporter information about warrants that they may receive for the data for the data that they've imported. So there, there are like a handful of things that kind of go beyond what the DPF requires. And in addition to that, um, European regulators have said, well, we want supplementary measures on top of the basic SECs. Um, we, you know, there's some guidance about what those would be, but really there's not like a clear list of what's required. I think that's 
kind of a risk. It's, it's on a risk basis. Um, and so, and so companies are saying, well, we have SECs. We've just done all this work to update our, our, our transfers procedures. Should we move to the DPF? And I'm thinking that it makes a lot of sense, uh, that a, a lot of companies will find that certifying with the DPF and transferring data under that framework will really streamline uh, their compliance efforts. Added to that, I'll say that I think it makes sense to also keep your SECs in place if you already have them and also consider uh, for some new relationships whether it makes sense to even incorporate your SECs even if you have the DPF to rely on. So that's that's for a few reasons. One is we we all know that the DPF could be invalidated. I think the SECs could be invalidated, but they're less likely to be. As I mentioned, you know they require uh, some additional protections, um, and and they were and they were kind of formulated by the European Commission in the wake of of Schrems II or in the wake of criticism of transatlantic transfers. Um, so. You know, so really to summarize, I think it makes sense to move to the DPF. There are advantages with it. For example, the independent recourse mechanism that individuals would use to complain of, about um, your transfers. So that's basically like pushing the pushing individuals to use arbitration as a as a first level complaint um, rather than going directly to their local regulator. Um, I think, you know, also the fact that the transfers under the DPF aren't being reviewed directly by European regulators like the SECs would be, um, because the DPF is a, you know, the the relevant regulator for the DPF would be uh, the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. So I think there are all these advantages to the DPF that really, you know, depending on company-specific analysis, would really behoove companies um, to certify. And then the question is whether they still keep their SECs. And I also think that that makes sense, as I've said, uh, but maybe I should pause here because I've been rambling for a bit. <laughs> no, I think that's good advice. Like I want people to know sort of your opinion um, as someone who who's really knowledgeable on this and advises clients all the time. But my question, so just to clarify, <clears throat> um, You've, you've enumerated the reasons why it does probably make sense to use DPF, but if I already have SECs in place, which are more stringent, as I understand you're saying, than DPF, then it shouldn't be too much of a heavy lift for me to shift to qualifying under DPF. Well, let's be frank. If you're a global company and your global privacy compliance operation is based on the GDPR, which I, which is a pretty common scenario just because um, GDPR has been around, you know, longer than the emerging U.S. state laws and, and similar laws in other countries. Um, what we're finding is that a lot of global companies will at least have a baseline compliance standard that's scoped to GDPR, and then they'll make adjustments in jurisdictions as needed. Um, if, if you have that baseline GDPR compliance program, you're already in good shape to meet all of the requirements of the DPF. Um, you know, from, from, from the perspective of the Department of Commerce folks who negotiated this, you really what you would have to do there is just update your privacy policies um, 
to to describe your use of the DPF and you should be good to go. You know, that that's obviously something that you need to review internally. There are, you know, seven principles and, um, you know, uh, and, and 16 supplemental principles. Um, it, so I guess that brings us to 23 principles in the DPF that you need to make sure that you're satisfying. Uh, but I think the message is that if you already have a strong GDPR compliance program that you're applying to the data that would be transferred um, uh, under the DPF. So that means that you're applying your, your GDPR compliance program in the U.S. as well. I think you're already in good shape to certify. Okay. Uh, what haven't we talked about on this topic that we should cover? Did we cover all of it? Or are there points that you're like, Angelique, we cannot miss this? You know, I, I I think we did we did a pretty good job um, mentioning everything. I will I did want to add kind of one more thing that's that's causing concern. We talked about some of the potential criticisms of the DPF and how those may play out, and, and frankly, they may impact companies' decision making now about pursuing DPF certification. I mentioned that I I don't think that companies should let you know, potential criticisms impact their decision-making just because the DPF, you know, is a strong framework. Uh, it's also accessible, right? The compliance obligations are pretty clear. And as long as you're following, you know, as long as, as you're satisfying those, um, the, you know, this is really a, a streamlined approach to transferring data across the Atlantic. That being said, the one challenge that I want to add is that in addition to the DPF, there was a separate um, Swiss-US data protection framework adopted uh, or negotiated between the US and the Swiss governments. And there was a UK extension added onto the EU-US DPF. And, and, and so what that means is that these certifications, right, which are you know separate but really overlapping for, for practical purposes, um, can be used to transfer or will be able to be used to transfer UK data to the US and Swiss data to the US. Both of those jurisdictions fall outside of GDPR. They have their own data protection frameworks. Um, the challenge is that though you can certify to those now, you can't use them yet to actually transfer data because the UK government hasn't issued an adequacy decision for the DPF. And the Swiss government hasn't issued an adequacy decision for the DPF. And I'm really confused about uh, why it's taking so long. <laughs> and so, you know, I, people can interpret that how they want. Um, I don't think it's a sign of weakness in the program because these are things that were negotiated by the governments. And now the governments just need to kind of do this formal step of issuing an adequacy decision. But it is a factor to think about. You know, and by the way, that's maybe also a factor if you're doing your DPF certification to keep your SECs, because you're going to, you at this point in time, you still need them for your UK transfers uh, and for your Swiss transfers to the US. You know, and of course, you, there, the, you know, there are some crosswalk uh, clauses that you need to implement to use those. All right. Well, this has been an insightful debrief on what the heck I should do, given that we're already seeing challenges beyond, and not just REMS. It's a non-SHREMS, pulling a SHREMS, 
And uh, we'll have to wait to see what happened. But as Julian says, uh, don't let it scare you yet. Consider all factors. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, Julian, for your expertise. I'm going to continue to check in uh, on you with you about all this. And uh, maybe the first time that we get some more news on this challenge, uh, we'll come back to you for an update. Great. I'll look forward to that. And and thanks for having me on. And great to see you, Angelique.